Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the Lord and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And our New Testament reading this morning is Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us in words that we can understand, but we know that we can only understand them by your Holy Spirit, illuminating the eyes of our hearts and causing it to sink deep within us. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us so that we can see spiritually, uh, we can see your Son, so that we may come to know him and have peace with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for a little context, I think it's important to go over the first five verses of the book of Ruth. Uh, And the story is pretty straightforward. Sometime during the events of the book of Judges, God had disciplined his people by sending a famine. Well, because of this famine, this man named Elimelech from Bethlehem left Bethlehem with his family to go find food. The path they took led them to Moab. Well, the path that they took led them away from the promised land and away from God's presence. Now, God's act of discipline was meant to call his people to repentance, but Elimelech and his family instead tried to run away from God's discipline. And so, on account of this faithfulness, Elimelech and his two sons died in Moab and left their three wives as widows. So these five short verses of the book of Ruth raise two big questions. First, is God going to see to it that Elimelech's name and family line carries on in the history of Israel? And second, the more immediate question is, What is going to happen? What is God going to do for these three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth? Well, uh, I'm not doing this as a series where I'm going to finish the book of Ruth in some weeks, so I'll answer the question of Elimelech's family name and his history. Uh, God, out of his grace, does preserve Elimelech's name uh, and family line in the history of Israel. But in order to get there, we're going to also see how God fulfills his promises in the case of Naomi and Ruth. And I think that the focus on these kind of bit players in redemption history is what makes the book of Ruth so compelling, what what makes it kind of a perennial favorite for Christians. Because I think that all of us ask from time to time, is God really going to fulfill his promises toward me? Or is he going to overlook me 
in his purpose of redemption. Because the Bible often shows us how God is at work through kings, prophets, and priests as he moves redemption history forward. But in Ruth, we see how God is fulfilling these promises in the lives of regular people. And yet then, as he works in the lives of regular people, we also see how he incorporates this work into his plan of redemption. As at the end of the book, we see that, uh, that from the, the union of, of Ruth and Boaz, uh, we get David, the, the king whom God promised. And so here in verses 6 through 18, we are going to see how God begins the promise or begins the process of fulfilling his promises in the case of Naomi and her family. And there are two key themes that emerge from this passage. First, we see how God has visited his people to fulfill his promises for them. And second, we'll see the paths that can be taken in response to God's visitation. So first, when Naomi hears of the Lord's visitation, what does she do? She decides that she's going to return to her homeland because the famine is finally over. Uh, when, I was, when I lived in St. Louis, you know, maybe every other year we'd have a bad snowstorm come through with ice and everything. And you go to the grocery store within those last two days before the storm, and what do you see? Nothing. You see bare shelves. All the bread and milk and eggs have been taken off the shelves, and they're just empty. And you get just a tiny little taste. If you're always a late planner like me, uh, although fortunately I didn't eat a lot of bread, milk, and eggs, uh, but, but you, you, you see a little bit of the desperation of what a famine is, but it's just a tiny taste, right? Because famines in the ancient world could last decades. Now, it says in verse 4 that Elimelech's family lived in Moab for how long? For 10 years before they, uh, Naomi decided to go back. And it's very likely that the famine was going on for several years before they decided to go to Moab, because going to Moab is not at all a, a decision that you make quickly or lightly. But now, as the famine has ended, it says in verse 6, the Lord has visited his people and given them food. But what does it mean for the Lord to visit his people? It's not uh, it's not just a throwaway phrase. Because this same phrase, that the Lord visited his people, occurs several other times in the Bible. And every time this phrase appears, it's describing the Lord's gracious presence to be with his people and to move forward his plan of redemption for the sake of his people. And so here are just a, a few examples. In Genesis 21, we read that the Lord visits Sarah. God had promised Abraham that he would have offspring and that he would father a great nation. And yet, Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 years old. So when the Lord visited Sarah, what did he do? He caused her con to conceive at the age of 90. In doing this, God fulfilled his promise that Abraham would fa father a great nation of people faithful to God. Let's look at another example. In Genesis 50, Joseph is about to die. And he is in Egypt with his brothers, and he prophesies to his brothers 
that the Lord will visit his people to bring them out of Egypt and into the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he foretells that the people of God will suffer greatly in the intervening time. But Joseph promises or foretells that God will visit his people and fulfill his promise toward them. God will rescue them from slavery and give them their own home. Well, hundreds of years later, in Exodus 4, Moses and Aaron tell the the elders of Israel that this exodus is about to happen. And when they do, it says they all rejoice that the Lord has done what? Visited his people. But most significantly, we read this same phrase again in Luke chapter 1. For after the birth of John the Baptist, his father Zechariah speaks, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the coming of our Lord Jesus, who would save the people of God. He came to save you by his death and resurrection on the cross. And if you put your trust in him, you will be delivered from all your sins and go through this life safely to God's glorious kingdom to come. And so this phrase, the Lord visited, is a marker. It shows that God is intervening in the life of his people to fulfill all his promises for them. And because of God's visitation in Christ, his visitation in the book of Ruth also has importance for us and lessons to teach us. Sometimes when the Lord visits his people, God visits individuals. Sometimes it says he visits all his people. But in every case, there are both corporate and personal benefits to his visitation. And so on the basis of God's visitation in the atonement of Christ, he's at work both to preserve the church and to ensure you safe passage to his eternal kingdom. And so here in Ruth 1, when it says that the Lord visits his people, we're meant to understand that he is at work to save his people, but especially that his his purposes are at work in Naomi's life. So we see overall what it means when God visits his people. But the Lord's visitation also leaves Naomi and her daughters-in-law with a choice. They have the choice to return on the path to the Lord in Bethlehem, or the choice to, so to speak, return on the path to Moab and continue running away from him. And this question of the return is the dominant theme of this passage. It's a word or a concept that appears nine times here in verses 6 through 18. And so the the question arises, will these poor widows return by the path to Moab and away from the Lord, or by the path to Bethlehem and back to the Lord? Now the path returning to Moab is actually pretty straightforward. They just need to stay put. And so, but the three widows go on, go some distance on the journey to Bethlehem. It's not clear how far, but Uh, it does seem fairly clear that they're still in the land of Moab as this conversation takes place. And Naomi gives her daughters-in-law the command, return to your mother's house. Stay in Moab. She tells it to them twice. 
She tells them to return to Moab, and they refuse to return to Moab. And so she gives, she reiterates the command. She tells them once again, stay here in Moab. And the thing is, it's actually really good advice. Because for Orpah and Ruth, there are many advantages to staying in Moab. They have opportunities. They have family who can take care of them. They can remarry. They can continue their own family lines. This this, uh, phrase, you know, go return to your mother's house, it's implicitly a command to go find new husbands because the mother's house or room was kind of considered to be the place where matches were made back then. We see this in Genesis 24 when Rebecca goes to her mother's house to say that Isaac's servant has come to take her as a wife. Naomi even wishes them rest and the Lord's kindness by meeting new husbands in Moab. And it makes sense, right? Because for childless widows in the ancient Near East, having a husband and then family to take care of you, that's simply what it takes to get by. Well, Orpah initially pledges with Ruth in verse 10 to return to Bethlehem, but after Naomi insists a second time that they should stay in Moab, she sees reason. Naomi is in no position to promise anything. She has nothing to offer. She can't make sure that Orpah will be taken care of. Naomi even says the hand of the Lord is against her. And so Naomi can't even promise that Orpah if she attaches herself to Naomi, will not be swept up in the Lord's judgment too. So in the end, Orpah sees reason, and she returns on the path back to Moab. And it's pretty hard to fault her for this. Naomi's right. Orpah's best opportunities for a happy and peaceful life are in Moab. But here's the rub. The path to Moab the path to peace and happiness that you can see with your two eyes is the path away from God. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Orpah got struck by lightning or torn apart by lions or uh, tripped and fell into an abyss on her way home. And yet, in a story that is all about God's work for his people and redemption, we hear nothing about her at all. She walks right off the page. She walks out of the story, out of the story of God's redemption. She likely led a happy life back home in Moab. She probably found somebody to marry and had children. But we can also see that she did not lead a life that led to the redemption that God offers either. And that's the problem with the past that the world will lead you down because The world offers you all kinds of opportunities to find security and peace and happiness in ways that don't lead us to God. Online communities and social media offer respect to people who can say the most vile and hostile things. You, if you're in the right community, can even burnish your credentials as a man or woman of God as you do so. But God isn't fooled. He knows who you are. Or maybe you're in business. You can cut corners, uh, maybe give a little less to your customers than they deserve, but they won't notice. You can pocket that and put it into your IRA and have a 
a substantial retirement account. But God honors a just scale, and, he, and he, he wants wages to be paid. God knows where that money came from. Or in other seemingly innocent or respe- respectable matters, you might find ultimate significance in your own marriage and family. Well, a healthy marriage and f- happy family are gifts from God, but they're not where we find ultimate significance. You can find meaning and significance and security in all kinds of places and ways that this world wants to offer you. And the world's paths may lead you to a feeling of peace or security or belonging or other desirable and good things. But the world's paths will lead you far from God in his ways. And so this raises the question, how do we know the path that faithfully responds to God's visitation? How do we know the path that God calls us to walk? Well, in Naomi and in Ruth, we see that the faithful response to God is a path characterized by self-sacrifice and even risk-taking for the sake of loving God and neighbor. And so let's look first at how Naomi took this risk out of her love for God. For Think about the risks presented by the path back to Bethlehem. Naomi and Ruth are two poor widows, and they're just intending to go for a 70-mile hike. It's about the distance from here to Portland. Now, on a, on a day like today, it, it might seem a little bit uh, like a heavier lift than usual. But still, uh, if we drove to Portland right now, we'd get there maybe in three hours instead of one and a half. But this is nothing like any trip that you ever take in the car. It's a hike on foot through rugged, hilly, if not mountainous terrain. There are wild animals, there are robbers. These two widows have to find a place to sleep every night. And Naomi is not young. I mean, she's in middle age at the youngest. She could injure herself. And there are no cell phones to call for a medical helicopter. A 70-mile drive might be nothing to you or me, but for Naomi and Ruth, this is starting to approach the level of difficulty that you see survival experts trying on the Discovery Channel. And even if Naomi does make it back home, she doesn't know what's waiting for her in Bethlehem because she doesn't know whether her family survived the famine. Word didn't travel fast back then. It's doubtful that she's had any contact, even a letter or a carrier pigeon or whatever, with her family from back home. And her husband's property may even have been claimed by someone else by now. Uh, If you've ever seen the movie about Schmidt, this character played by Jack Nicholson, he's retired and his wife has died and he has no sense of purpose, so he goes on a road trip kind of to try to find himself. And there's this great scene where he goes to the house where he was born. Do you know what he finds there? He finds a tire store. Well, Naomi might go back to Bethlehem and find, probably not a tire store, but a wheel store perhaps or something in place of where her home used to be. That's all that may be there for Naomi when she gets back. And so all in all, Naomi is making a dangerous return journey to Bethlehem with no guarantee of finding a home when she gets there. But here's what she does have there. 
She has her God. She has one of the people of Israel. And God promised his people, his presence for his people there in Israel. Her family fled God's presence and discipline, but Naomi is making her return trip back to God. Her act of return is an act of faithfulness in God's promise to visit his people and provide for their needs. Even as she openly says in verse 13 that the Lord's hand has gone out against her, it's a statement of submission to his discipline. And so whatever suffering or discipline God has in store for you, it's it's better than all the security that the world can offer. Because even if there is suffering or discipline for you, the Lord gives it to you for your good. We read in Romans 8 that we share in Christ's inheritance only by suffering with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We read in Hebrews 12 that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness and bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness as we are trained by him. God works through suffering and discipline to make you more like Christ. And so, as Naomi responds to God's visitation by returning to Bethlehem, she's walking a path, a risky path of faithfulness, a path that may bring suffering and discipline, but a path of faithfulness nevertheless. But Naomi is not the only one who takes a path to God. Ruth does too. So let's look now at how Ruth takes a risky path marked by love for her mother-in-law. For with two widows on the road to Jerusalem, all of the risks are doubled. Where one widow may have found no family in Bethlehem, we have one widow now who might find no family and one who will find no family. And in her return, Ruth is attaching herself to an Israelite under God's discipline. Not the easiest or most auspicious beginning of your way to God. But Ruth does it anyway. And it says here, she demonstrates that she's doing it out of love for Naomi. For even death will not separate them. Ruth says that she intends to be buried in the same plot where Naomi is buried. Ruth shows loving kindness to Naomi by returning with her. For Naomi wanted Ruth to find the Lord's blessing and rest in Moab. But Ruth will seek it in Bethlehem instead. She renounces her god Chemosh and follows Yahweh, even swearing by Yahweh and not by Chemosh that she will go with Naomi. Well, a recurring theme of the book of Ruth is the chesed. That's the Hebrew word that's translated loving kindness or mercy. It's tough to translate into English, but the best way to think about it is it's, it's a loyal love guaranteed by a covenant. Because it has these implications of relationship and kindness that you willingly oblige yourself to give to another. And so the recurring theme of Ruth's story is this chesed that is shown both by God to his people and by his people to one another. And so Orpah's path may have been safe, but Ruth's path was love. And so by the world's standards, Ruth had every reason to return to Moab. She has good marriage prospects if she goes to Moab. And she has a good, she has family still there to take care of her. But she gives up everything that she knows there to go with Naomi out of love for her and love for her God. She gives her whole life to Naomi and to the Lord. And so we see 
that God's visitation to his people didn't just mean that he gave them food. In his visitation, he also calls a new daughter to himself. For God calls Ruth to return to a place she had never been and to be a part of a people she had never known. And Ruth isn't the only one because Jesus followed a path marked by love as well. For the Father sent his Son to die for the salvation of those whom he loved. Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father out of the love that they had shared for all eternity, and he endured the cross for the joy of saving a people for himself. He endured the cross out of love for you and me. His path was hard, and he suffered the whole way through, but through his suffering, it says in Hebrews 5 that he was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. His path was risky, and his path was absurd by the world's standards. But his path was not measured by the world's standards. As Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus had the opportunity to take the world's way when Satan offered him bread and worldly political power, but Jesus instead chose the path of obedience out of love for his heavenly Father. And we see the fruits of his labor today in the lives of sinners saved by God. And so what if this path of love means you go against the world's standards? The world teaches us that security is found in all kinds of ways that take us away from God. And so you have the choice before you. You can walk the path of security that the world offers, or you can walk the path of love that Jesus walked for us. The world's path looks safe. We crave safety. But as we see in Orpah, the safe path doesn't lead us toward the God who has visited you and me. The God who can see you safely through, although with difficulty in this life, but the God who has a plan for your redemption and eternal life with him. The path God calls you to take is not marked by safety. It's marked by suffering, self-sacrifice, discipline, and love. Jesus walked that risky path for you out of love for you too, a path that led him to die for you. But this, this Jesus was God's visitation to his people. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, now leads you and strengthens you to walk this same path on this pilgrimage in life that leads to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for your love that you have shown to us, manifested especially in the life and death that our Lord Jesus lived and suffered. But Father, you raised him from the dead, and in him you visit us, your people, and so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us and guide us, to take care of us and give us the wisdom and the confidence in you to follow the path that you would have us walk. Amen.